The word of the Lord, as found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. I read a, an article recently that said that uh, a third of malls were going to be closed in the next 10 years. And went on to talk about J.C. Penney and Sears and all these companies that were going out of business and how the whole way that we consume goods is radically being changed. And it seems like everybody I talk to has this sense of, of massive change going on. And uh, I hear a lot about that in the church world, too, and uh, I think a lot about that. Uh, I read a book uh, this week that the author said that he felt like we were going through a change as massive in the church as has happened in 500 years. Uh, I don't know if that's true. It's a good way to sell a book. But uh, the, the, the point is that a lot of people are feeling like things are changing. I read another statistic this week that said that if you were born between 1925 and 1945, you had a 60% chance of being in church. If you're born after 1983, uh, you're, there's a 10% chance that uh, you would be in church. So there's all sorts of kind of statistics and things like that out there. And, and a lot of people are, are asking, and I'm asking, and I have a row on my shelf in my library of books that are asking, well, what does the church look like in a time of change? Um, how, how, how do we gather? What, what is it going to look like in the, the future? Um, this passage that we're going to look at tonight is, is helpful to, 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 to think about that question because you know, I think we'd all agree that the structures of how you worship as Christians and how you gather, they change across cultures, they change across time. They should change, right? But the essence of what the church is, should, you should hold on to. And I think we get into trouble when we err on one side or the other, right? We, we mistake structures for sacred essence and say, no, no, you can't change that. When you can. Or when we lose some of the essence and just kind of let it go because it's no longer convenient. So I find this to be a perplexing problem. It, it is something I lay awake thinking about. Um, and so let, let's kind of dive into this text a little bit and see what uh, Peter might be saying about this. Now, you remember 
This is the end of the first section of the book of Peter. There's three sections in it. And the first one he addresses to these new Christians that are living in, we would call it northern Turkey. These were all Roman cities. That was a Roman province. Most of them are Gentiles converting from other religions. A few of them are Jews. And as they've come to faith in Christ, they have decided, you know, there's, there's, there's some things that my family and my neighbors were practicing before that I can't do anymore. And as they made that decision and pulled away, people started to feel rejected by them. They started to feel suspicious of them. And they started to become hostile towards these young churches. And uh, about 40 years later, this will turn into violent persecution. But right now, it's more of a, what we might call a marginalization. They were increasingly being pushed to the side of their communities. And so Peter writes to encourage these distressed Christians. And what he says is, I know it seems like when you've come to faith, you lost everything and you're kind of just disappearing. But actually, this is what's true. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So what is the church? What is one of the, the essential distinctives of the church? The church is a spiritual house. Now, people from time immemorial have always associated God in stone, right? The Jews did. God dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the Greeks did. A Roman city where these churches were had temples everywhere. Yale historian Ramsey McMullen wrote this. He said, The standard Roman city would need temples to the gods of Jupiter, Juno, Minerva, plus Mercury, Isis, and Serapis, Apollo, Liber Pater, Hercules, Mars, Venus, Vulcan, and Ceres. So anywhere you would have walked in this ancient city, you would have seen these houses of stone where God's presence dwelt. And so Peter makes this revolutionary claim. He says, now you're the stone building where God's presence dwells. It's a spiritual house. It's a house of the spirit. It's a house where the spirit of God lives. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, He'll say, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So this was a pretty radical idea, both for Jews and Greeks, this idea that the church is not a building, but it is a community where God's presence dwells when you gather for worship. And that has some pretty important implications. And I want to be careful as we talk about this tonight. I don't want, as Dan prayed so beautifully, I, I want to split the middle between legalism and grace or, or kind of hold that intention. But there are some implications of this. If, if the church is a spiritual house made up of living stones where all of you are stones that God brings together as a master builder to put into this building, this spiritual house, if that's true, it means a few things. It means that you can meet God in nature but it's not enough. It means you can meet God having a glass of wine, talking with friends on your back porch over a good book, but it's not enough. 
It means that there is a unique way that believers encounter the presence of God in the gathered community. When all the stones come together to form the temple, that there's something unique about that that you can't flourish with without. Now, let me be the first to say, it doesn't have to be Sunday night at five. It's not so much about where you do it, how you do it, when you do it. Okay, we all get that. We all get that. But you got to do it. You cannot flourish spiritually in front of your computer. You need to be a part of a spiritual house. It can be six people in your living room. It's got to be somewhere. King David prayed in the 27th Psalm, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He'll keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle. He'll set me on a rock, and then I'll be exalted in my enemies who surround me at His tabernacle. While I sacrifice with shouts of joy, I will sing and make music to the Lord. New Covenant believers apply that to the church, to the gathered community, that there should be that same kind of longing in the believer's heart to gather with the people of God in the presence of God to worship. Now, another thing that we learn from this metaphor of the church as a spiritual house made of living stones is that it's a diverse community. Uh, I've never built a house made from stone. Uh, I built a wall once at a monastery made for stone. They quickly assessed my capacity, gave me a wheelbarrow, and said, go find rocks. That was as far as uh, I got. And I wandered around the New Mexico desert bringing back rocks. And sometimes they would say, that's not the right rock. And at first I'd go out and look for rocks that were all similar, and that didn't work. Because stone walls, all the rocks have to be different. And there's a really good essay a friend sent me in it, the writer says, the word describes us as living stones that are being fitted together to build a habitation for God in our time. In stonework, each rock is selected for the place in the wall where it best fits. This is inherently different from the concept of bricklaying, in which each item comes out of the same mold with a uniform size, shape, and color. There's nothing particularly special about bricks. They're all designed to be interchangeable. That's not how God made us. We can be united without being uniform. We can be diverse without being divided. If you ever have the, the, the privilege of going to the temple in Jerusalem, one of the things that's so shocking is that there are stones scattered all over that part of the city that fell in 70 AD when the Romans came in and conquered it. Nobody ever bothered to pick it up. And the temple stopped being a worshiping temple at that, ploice, at that point because you can't have a functioning temple when the stones are scattered all over the city. It doesn't work anymore. The stones have to come together for the temple to function. And again, I don't want to push the metaphor too far, but, but sometimes I feel like what's happening is that, that we're letting the stones be scattered all over and we're not coming together to build the house. And you don't have a temple if the stones are scattered all over. 
the stones have to come together to form the house. Now again, it doesn't have to be Sunday night at 5. It can be Tuesday night at 4. It can be in your living room. It can be with five people. I get that. 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 But it's got to happen somewhere. It's got to happen somewhere. We all need to be a part of a spiritual house. Well, Peter goes on to say to his readers that God is building them into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Covenant, priests were descendants of Aaron. Only they could offer sacrifices acceptable to God. In the New Covenant, every believer is a priest. John in Revelation 1.15 says that we are all made priests to God. So if we're looking at essential distinctions of the church, the first one is that we're a spiritual house, and that we need each other. It's in some expression, all the stones have to come together if we're going to, to, to flourish and be who God made us to be. And the second distinctive is that we're a community of believer priests. And that means that you and I have equal access to God. In the Old Covenant, you had much more of a hierarchical way. Moses would go to the mountain, he'd get revelation, he'd come back, he'd share it, he'd give it to the priest, the priest would hand it off to everybody else. It was like that. In the New Covenant, that all changes, and we are all believer priests, and we all have equal access to God. We all hear from God the same way, and all our gifts are equally valued in the community. And I think that also has a couple of different implications. One is that it means that we need to listen carefully to one another. And that's something that we're working on as a community. Because if you're a priest, you hear from God. And you have something I don't have. And so one of the things All Souls works hard on is this whole idea of collaborative discernment of of God's will, that that we need to listen well to each other because we each have a piece. We're all like a puzzle piece, and everybody's piece is equally important. The doctrine of the priesthood believers also means that vision can come from anywhere and everywhere, because if everyone has access to God, then all of our gifts and calling are equal And everyone is called to live out a priestly ministry in the world. See, in the Old Covenant, Moses would go to the mountain, get the vision, come back and give it to the people. That's all turned upside down. In the New Covenant, the vision comes from the people because they all can go up the mountain. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, you think about things like vision. I had a good friend ask me recently, what's your vision? Do you have a five-year plan? And I, I really thought about that because that's something that good leaders, I think, you know, the books say that you're supposed to have is a five-year plan. And I, I think that's valid. Uh, and it's very important in certain spheres. But as I thought about it, I thought, okay, here, here's how I understand my vision as your pastor for our church. My vision is to help you fulfill your vision. Period. 
because you are a priest, just as I am a priest. And I think that's one of the reasons I find myself doing more and more spiritual direction, meeting with people and just trying to help them discern what God is up to in their life, because when you fall in love with Jesus Christ, when you have a burning heart for Jesus Christ, you will discern your priestly calling in the world. And when that happens, we are fulfilling our vision as a church. Now, a community of believer priests still has leadership. People, Peter will talk about that in 1 Peter 5. And we have a Presbyterian form of church government. We elect people to lead us and make decisions for us, and that's all part of it. But even when we do that, we try to do it collaboratively, listening well to one another and to you. Well, then he goes on to support his teaching with some quotes from the Old Testament, and he ends with a climax. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this, he's doing something very interesting here. He's taking four adjectives from the Old Testament that were applied to Israel and applying them to the church. And he's saying, okay, you're Israel, you're the people of God, your priests, your holy nation, and here's your purpose. You're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you're supposed to learn how to say excellencies when you preach. <laughs> so, what's the purpose of this community? You're supposed to show people how beautiful God is. That's what we do. We witness to the beauty of God. Well, how do you, how do you witness in a culture that is increasingly hostile to, um, to, to maybe some of the things that we believe? Well, it's interesting. The next part of the book of 1 Peter addresses that question. It's really about witnessing faithfully in a culture that is hostile to the gospel. And here's, here's the bottom line. We're going to spend a lot of time in it, but here's the bottom line. Suffer well, and when people ask you how you do it, tell them. That's kind of it. <laughs> Suffer well, and when people ask you how you're holding up, tell them why. That's Peter's evangelistic strategy. So everything is changing. It really is. I suspect we're not going to look the same way in 10 years. And I understand that some of you may explore new expressions of the church. You may explore creative alternative expressions of the church. I hope you hang around here and help us figure out what it looks like. But if you got to, you got to. And if you're listening on the podcast, we have more people listening on podcasts now than we, than we do come to church. And I have mixed feelings about that. I'm glad that you're listening. But, uh, you know, if, if you're uh, sitting on your couch in your sweats and you just blew off tonight, please listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's something beautiful about the church. I know you've been hurt by the church. I'll show you my back sometime. I've been hurt by the church. I've probably hurt a lot of you in the church. But there is something lovely about the church. And no matter how often it goofs up, how many times I get hurt, I think we've got to come back to that. I was finishing up today, and I went and I found an old book that I got in 1984. still had the bookstore price tag in it. It was the first book I read on the church by Dr. Sosi, the Church and God's Program. I think it cost like $1.95 or something like that. And I pulled this thing out, and all the pages fell out. It's because so many times over the years I've gone back, flipped open that little book and asked, what are we doing here? And just there's something about watching those pages spill out over the floor of my office and bending down, picking them up, trying to stuff them all back in. It just 33 years washed back over me. And I, I just had this, uh, this epiphany of both the, the pain the hurt, the frustration, and the incredible joy and beauty and glory of going on this journey with you. Facebook is not enough. Let's pray.